Uh, let's open up in our Bibles in Matthew chapter 1. We are in Matthew chapter 1. Last week we started in the Gospel of Matthew. If you weren't here last week, you might want to get that message where we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. It is a section of Scripture that when you go to read the book of Matthew, be honest, you normally skip over. It's rather tedious to read, but it is glorious in its content. So if you've never experienced the content of the genealogy of Jesus, we encourage you to go online our website and get last week's message. You can listen to that there. Um, our Ventura campus will be joining us for this message. Let's let them know that we love them very much. The title of this message is God Miraculously Steps Into Our Mess. Does that make sense? God miraculously steps into our mess, also known as the virgin birth, the virgin birth. Last week, we talked about God's mercy being evident in the mess of our world and our lives from the genealogy. Today, we see Jesus stepping into our mess, the virgin birth. So we will read verses 18 through 25 of Matthew 1. I'm reading and teaching from the New American Standard Bible. Matthew starts in verse 18 and says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning to hear, read, and explore your word. Thank you for the opportunity to rejoice over the truth of your word, to be able to obey what your word is telling us. Thank you for the way your word shapes and forms us as living and active, that it does a deep work in us. And we ask today that it would, that you just save us from merely hearing sermons as we're in the book of Matthew, but we would truly be doers of the word and our hearts would rejoice in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ through whom we have forgiveness. So Lord, would you by your spirit bring my preaching to life and would you by your spirit give life to our hearing and cause our lives to be different for the glory of Jesus. We pray it together in that name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've lived for very long at all, you know that life can be messy. Can I get an amen? Amen. In fact, my little girl, Fifi, she will be two in March, on March 5th. Her life is already somewhat messy, mostly when she's eating, but nonetheless, messy. 
But as you get older, life seems messier. And I can remember being a young Christian and thinking I kind of had it all together. I went through some really big messes, junior high, high school. Can I get a witness? Some of you in here, you went to junior high and high school with me. You know what I'm talking about. My mom is in the back row. She knows what I'm talking about. She's shaking her head no, but okay. It's good. (laughs) That's right, mom. I was good. Anyway, I digress really far. Life can get messy. And then in my early 20s, you know, I got it together, started to follow Jesus and thought, yeah, this isn't, this isn't so bad. And I looked at older people and thought, why are they making such messes of their lives? And then I lived a little longer. And I realized that life just is messy. And stuff happens. Stuff that can be real hard, real hurtful, real challenging. It's not just our lives. Our lives are merely symptomatic of the world. The world is messy. We look at the history of the world, it's messy. We look at the current state of our world, it's messy. And the love of God is made manifest in this. That God himself stepped into the messiness of our world and steps into the messiness of our lives in the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ. God did this for one reason, because he loves us. You know, it's a true sign of love when you're willing to get into someone's mess. We're not, amen. We're not always willing to do that. God and Christ was willing to do that for us. Now, last week in the genealogy of Christ, we learned about Jesus being a descendant of Abraham and David. And we learned there in the sermon that the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah had to be a descendant of both Abraham and David because of those covenants associated with with them that the Messiah would have to fulfill. And the Messiah would have to come from them because the fulfillment of those covenants, the Davidic and Abrahamic covenant, were dependent upon lineage. God's promise to bless the whole world that he gave to Abraham. God's promise to bring in a righteous rule that he gave to David. But if we think about it logically for a moment, we realize that both Abraham and David had many descendants. So what, would Matthew argue, made Jesus the descendant who would extend God's particular covenantal blessing and rule into the world? Why not one of the other many descendants of both Abraham and David? Why is Jesus the descendant. That's what Matthew is arguing in chapter 1. And there's lots of ways that we might answer that from Scripture, and particularly from the book of Matthew. Of course, the witness of John the Baptist, whose own birth was surrounded by supernatural events, and then came on the scene announcing that Jesus would be the Messiah, and he was the forerunner spoken of by the prophets of old. We might argue that as proof for Jesus being the particular son of David and son of Abraham, or perhaps the teaching and miracle, and healing ministry of Jesus. That's a good way to argue it. Well, yeah, Abraham and David had lots of sons, but not many of them walked on water and raised the dead. That's a good one. Or perhaps Christ's resurrection from the dead. Yeah, Abraham and David had lots of sons, but not many of them were crucified on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. And those are all good lines of reasoning that will become evident for Matthew's arguments in the book of Matthew. But the first line of evidence presented by Matthew 
for the Messiahship of Jesus after his genealogy is the virgin birth, the supernatural events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation when God draped himself in humanity. You'll remember in the esoteric phraseology of John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus who has always existed as the second member of the Trinity, at this particular moment in history, drapes himself in humanity because of God's love comes to us. And this is the first line of reasoning after his lineage as to why Jesus is the Messiah. Not just a son of Abraham and David, but the son of Abraham and David who will himself extend God's blessing and rule into the world. He is both Savior and, as the text says, Emmanuel, God with us. And so in telling now the narrative of the virgin birth, Matthew is demonstrating this to be the case, the uniqueness of Jesus, by reporting the divine intervention that took place around his conception. So he says there in verse 18, the beginning of our text for today, he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Pause there for a moment. It's important that we, in the book of Matthew, understand the word Christ. We often think of this phrase, Jesus Christ, as being his first name and his last name. But that's not what it is. Jesus was his name, Christ is the title. Christ in Greek is the word Christos. It's a translation of the word from Hebrew, Mashiach, which means Messiah. So Christ is the Greek and then English way of saying Messiah. Three different times in chapter 1, Matthew uses the name Jesus and the title Messiah, Christ, together. He's very purposely wanting to say that Jesus is the promised, expected Messiah. And what he's saying in our text today, he's telling us in chapter 1, is that not only is Jesus' ancestry proof of him being the Messiah, last week's text and sermon, but also the circumstances surrounding his birth. So he continues then in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So we get a little bit of information here. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. That means essentially that they were engaged. The entire uh, sort of marriage process was a bit different in that ancient Middle Eastern Jewish culture than it is in ours, but betrothal was our, our general sort of equivalent for engagement, except for the fact that it was binding. It was binding in the way that marriage was binding. So if you wanted to break off the betrothal or the engagement, so to speak, it required a divorce. It normally lasted about a year. And though it was official, though it was binding, though it was like marriage, there was no sex at this time. Key ingredient missing. That's why it says there before they came together. That's an important detail. So before they came together, while they're betrothed, before they consummated the marriage, which is why it would happen on the wedding night, 
Mary was found to be with child. That is scandal language if you were there at that time. Now, Matthew is quick to say, by the Holy Spirit, because he doesn't want us to get the wrong idea for even a moment. He says they were betrothed. They were engaged. They hadn't had sex yet. Suddenly, Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Don't worry. And we'll come back to by the Holy Spirit in a moment. But what about this scandal? Now, in reality, it isn't a scandal because we know the insider details. We know that it's by the Holy Spirit and that she wasn't cheating on Joseph. It wasn't a scandal at all. But it certainly appeared to be. It appeared to be to Joseph. It would have appeared to be to Mary's mom and dad, her brothers and sisters, her friends, her cousins, her community, her schoolmates. She was probably a teenager at the time. That was when they got married back then. It it very much would appear to be a scandal. And who's going to believe? Oh, don't worry. I didn't have sex outside of betrothal. It's the Holy Spirit that did this to me. Right? So this was a real scandal in its social implications. Though what people would have thought of her was not the actual truth. It was a very big deal in that culture. It's quite honestly a big deal in our culture. It was a really big deal in God's law. Look what's said about this situation in in the book of Deuteronomy. This This is tough stuff here. It's talking about if after a wedding, the bride is accused of not having been a virgin on the wedding night. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found, she shall be brought out to the door of her father's house and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She's done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. If a man man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Now, 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 now. This feels to us like a different world. This is talking about premarital sex and adultery. This is talking about very much the stuff that we talk about. This is talking about the stuff that it's in every TV show, every movie, written about in magazines, common amongst our friends, common perhaps even amongst us. And for the most part, widely accepted in our culture. I mean, there's websites for committing adultery, right? It's encouraged. And people go and subscribe by the millions. And premarital sex, are you kidding me? That's even an issue? Well, apparently so. Admittedly, not much so in our culture. But in God's word, it's quite a big deal. Now, we're a little more removed culturally from God's word than Mary and Joseph and her community were 2,000 years ago in Israel. This was very, very real to them, very near to them. This wasn't in any way news to them. And if Joseph, whom we encounter in the story, 
were endeavoring to obey the Mosaic law, then that's what he would have done. He would have said, look at her stomach. There's the evidence. She's not a virgin. We're betrothed. We've never had relations. She's obviously had sex outside of the covenant of marriage. She should be stoned. The penalty for that was the death penalty. That's what he would have done if he was obeying the Mosaic law. But we see something different in verse 19, don't we? Verse 19 says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. That phrase, send her away, is a different way of saying write her a certificate of divorce, which was necessary even during betrothal, and to do it secretly. He didn't want to disgrace her. He knew that this road of shame, remember, people didn't have the inside story like we do, was going to be difficult enough for her. He didn't want to draw more attention to it. Assuming he loved her, he just wanted to secretly, discreetly, mercifully get out of it. Even though God's law demanded something different. What is happening here? And yet Joseph is called a righteous man. What, what, what is happening here? What we see begin to happen at this moment in history is that there is now a different dynamic at work in God's people. There comes into the time-space continuum a different dynamic of dealing with things. Remember, Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. We already saw the rules for adultery. Remember Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Here's a couple of verses from it from John chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Same situation. Jesus was altogether righteous. What did Jesus do? Jesus ended up saying to the woman, woman, I do not condemn you. And the only reason why Jesus could say that to her is because he himself would be condemned for her on the cross. It's not as though Jesus came and said, no more penalty for adultery and sex outside of the covenant of marriage. That doesn't apply anymore. That's not what he said. That wasn't Jesus' view of the law. When we get to Matthew chapter 5, we will find that Jesus ups the ante on the law. He says, you've heard it written in the law, right, that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. He ups the ante on the law. He's not saying, oh, those are antiquated rules from Moses that don't make sense for our culture anymore. He wasn't saying anything like that. What he did say to the woman was, I don't condemn you. And the only reason he could say that is because he himself would be condemned in her place on the cross and pay the price for her sin. That's a 
different dynamic working in the world with the coming of Jesus. And what we see happening with Joseph is a foreshadow, a picture, an illustration, a whisper of this grace and truth brought to the world in Christ. He's dealing with Mary in a different way. It's not that the law has changed, but the one had now come who would pay our debt that we've incurred to the law and free us from its consequences. What is happening here with Joseph is that the mercy of the Messiah is already breaking into the world at his conception. Now we say, well, of course that wasn't going to happen. She was innocent. Well, we know that. We have the Bible years later sitting here, but they didn't know that. And he didn't know that. But what we do know is that this is exactly the course of action in light of the coming of the Messiah that God would have Joseph take. Look at verse 20. But when he had considered this, right, he was going to give her a certificate of divorce and just send her away discreetly. When he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Skip to verse 24 for a moment. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Something different is happening in the world with the coming of the Messiah. The mercy of God is breaking in in a whole new way. Think of the implications of it for Joseph. Joseph awakes from this dream and says, okay, I'll I'll, I'll then take Mary as my wife. So the, the entire community then now thinks Joseph is complicit in this. Right? That's, that's what mom and dad would have thought. That's what the cousins would have thought. That's, that's what the community and his coworkers would have thought. It's, oh, well, if you're married, then this is a shotgun wedding. Look what Joseph is doing here. Joseph, as a picture and illustration of Jesus the Messiah, is entering into Mary's shame with her. He is saying to her, Mary, I am willing to bear your disgrace with you as an act of self-sacrificial love according to the will of God. Joseph would identify in a very real way by marrying this pregnant woman with her humiliation, though he himself was, as he knew, innocent. A picture, a foreshadow an illustration of the story of Jesus. And what this means then in the story of Israel is that everything was changing now that Messiah had come on the scene. It's not as though this were new news. This was news made evident in their time-space continuum, but it was reverberating from ancient promises and prophecies. You'll remember 700 years earlier, Isaiah 53. But he, prophesying of Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. We all, we all, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the bigger picture. The fulfillment, Israel's story consummated in Jesus, that we see a little, very real picture of happening between Joseph and Mary. He entered into her shame, her apparent sin, though it really wasn't as we know. Isaiah 54 says this, Fear not, God speaking to Israel about the Messiah, for you will not be put to shame. Do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth. That is gospel promise. Because who doesn't read these words and think of themselves? Shame, humiliation, disgrace. Am I the only one who in my life has earned such adjectives? but look what's happening in the incarnation of Jesus. You will forget the shame of your youth. The punishment that was due to us would be taken by the promised one of God. Important to say now in our culture, important to say, listen to me, the moral code, the standard remained unchanged. God still views sex outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman and adultery in the same way. The moral standard has not been altered in any way. But there was coming, with regards to the penalty, a substitute for us. Again, Isaiah 53, God said of Jesus, My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. My servant will justify the many as he himself will bear their iniquities. So now we see unfolding in Matthew's telling of the story of Jesus, another dimension to Jesus as Messiah. He is not only the promised seed of Abraham who would extend God's blessing into the world. He's not only the promised son of David who would extend God's righteous rule into the world from the throne of David, but he is also the promised servant of Yahweh bringing God's mercy into the world. This is what's being spoken of in verse 21. Look in verse 21 of our text. The angel said to Joseph in the dream, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. And that is the way that Jesus will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise of a blessing to all the nations, and the Davidic covenant, the promise made to David of a righteous rule in all the nations. That is the way that Jesus will bring the blessing of God and the rule of God into the world is through the forgiveness of sins. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. Before some societal cataclysmic change, before some governmental overthrow, 
The forgiveness of sins is the beginning of the extension of the blessing of God and the rule of God. Because where sin is forgiven, then the rule of sin is broken. Where sin is removed as far as the east is from the west, nailed to the cross of Christ, then blessing has come into our lives. He will save his people from their sins. This is a big deal. And so God does a big thing to accomplish it. God does this by the miracle of the virgin birth or virgin conception, we might say. Now look again at verse 22. The angel continuing says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now he's going to quote Isaiah again, 700 years earlier, now chapter 7, verse 14. Angel quotes and says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So notice again, several times in Matthew chapter 1, that Matthew is telling us over and over that Jesus didn't come on the scene out of the blue. That this isn't something that was a convenient contrivance of some people in Israel 2,000 years ago. He is connecting this to ancient promises and prophecies and saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of these. Isaiah 7.14, there it is. Jesus is the fulfillment. And the way that this takes place, as we see in verse 18, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So what this means is somehow, supernaturally, a miracle, God impregnated Mary, who was a virgin. Now, there are numerous ancient mythologies about God's coming down into the realm of men and having sex with women and them having offspring. This is not the same thing. There's no sex here. There's no intercourse here. There's not the involvement of any man here. This is a supernatural, miraculous thing that God did. The nature of a miracle is that it's not normal. That's the definition. What's a miracle, Pastor Britt? Not normal. Wouldn't it usually happen outside of the intervention of God? God brings about his promised Messiah through miraculous means, just as the genealogy of Jesus was miraculous in so many ways. And many theologians say that this, the incarnation, God draping himself in humanity, is actually the greatest miracle of all scripture. The fact that God would step into our world, take on human flesh, Jesus, who was, remember, theologically pre-existent. It's not that Jesus came into existence here and was created like we were at conception. That's not the way it works. He is pre-existent. He has always been. God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here, God in Christ drapes himself in humanity. And Jesus becomes, in proper theology, so to speak, the God-man. Scriptures tell us that he remained fully God 
and yet became fully man. This is what's happening. This is why it's such an incredible miracle. It's beyond comprehension. Fully God and fully man. It's called the dual nature of Christ. We say, how does that work? And how does that play out? I don't know. It's a miracle. Not normal. It's hard to comprehend. Fully God and fully man. We see it playing out in interesting ways in the Gospels, don't we? Sometimes Jesus knew everything. Sometimes he didn't seem to know. Sometimes there were great miracles. Other times he was very human and he was sleeping or he was hungry or he was hurting. The dual nature of God. It's not that he was a little bit man and a little bit God. That's not what scripture teaches. Fully God and fully man. The pre-existent Christ draped in humanity through the virgin birth, a miracle of God. Now, it's disturbing to me that many Christians struggle with believing the virgin birth. It's disturbing to me. Why would we not believe the virgin birth? A lot of Christians say, listen, if I'm going to sign on to Christianity, do I, do I really have to believe the virgin birth? I mean, that's a little out there. It is out there. Remember the definition of a miracle. Not normal. It's a miracle. And if you have a problem with miracles, you have a big problem with Christianity. Never mind Christianity, God. You have a bigger problem than the virgin birth if you don't believe in miracles. I mean, what do you say then? God, God, God didn't create? What do you say then? Christ wasn't risen from the dead. Wasn't that a miracle? If, if you don't believe in, your miracle, in miracles, then you've you got a bigger problem than just a virgin birth. I can understand in our postmodern culture and with our rationalism and perhaps even in our midst, we feel as though we don't see many miracles of this nature. And yet there it is. It's a miracle of God. Yeah, if you don't believe in miracles, you're not going to believe in the virgin birth. Other people don't believe in it because they just doubt the veracity of Scripture. They doubt that Scripture is trustworthy here. Both Matthew and Luke tell us that this was a virgin conception by the Holy Spirit and a virgin birth. If you don't believe what Matthew and Luke say about this, then what do you believe that Matthew and Luke say? Do you, do you pick and choose at that point? Did Jesus feed the multitudes? Did Jesus cleanse the leper? Did Jesus open the eyes of the blind? Did Jesus cause the lame to walk? Did Jesus walk on water? Did Jesus die on the cross and say with his dying breath, forgive them, Father, they know what they do? Did Christ rise from the dead? Where does belief and disbelief start and end then? I would suggest to you that Matthew is a trustworthy source for the life of Jesus. And Luke is a trustworthy source for the life of Jesus. And that the Bible, with all of its challenges and difficulties, can be trusted when it comes to the story of Jesus. Matthew and Luke got this right. Others, perhaps slightly more aware of scriptures, would argue that Isaiah 7.14, that passage, the Hebrew word there used that we just saw is virgin, doesn't mean necessarily virgin. It also means young woman. And that is true. The Hebrew word is Alma. And it could mean a young woman of marriable age, or it could mean virgin. So then it could be translated back in Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, a young woman shall be with child. A sign shall be given to you. A young woman shall be with child. It could be translated that way. 
So there is a legitimate question there. What do we do about this? What scholar do we turn to? Well, how about Matthew? Matthew tells us how to interpret it. Matthew says when he writes here in the Holy Word of God by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that as it pertains to Jesus, it was virgin. Matthew settles the issue for me. Which way do we translate it? Matthew tells us how to translate it, how to interpret it, how to understand it as it pertains to Jesus. Now, there was, I believe, in that prophecy, a double fulfillment, as there are many prophecies in the Old Testament. When God originally gave this to Israel, King Ahaz of Judah was concerned about two other kings north of him who were going to invade. And God was telling him, listen, I'm going to do something. I'm going to intervene on your behalf. Behold, I'll give you a sign. A virgin or a young woman will be with child. And chapter 8 tells us that it was fulfilled with Isaiah and his wife, but that they had relations. So there, the idea was a young woman. It was a double fulfillment. There was the immediate context in which it was fulfilled, and it's all it would have ever been if Matthew hadn't come along and said, well, here's the ultimate picture of what was going on. Yes, God told King Ahaz, who was an evil king of Judah, that he would deliver him and intervene on his behalf and that this would be a sign. But God has also told us, evil wannabe kings, that he will deliver us and intervene on our behalf and this would be the sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and his name shall be called Emmanuel. God is with us. Now, let me just finish by telling you why this matters doctrinally, why it matters, the doctrine of the virgin birth. Christian doctrine, Scripture, teaches, as I said before, that Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why did Jesus have to be fully human? We can look at several reasons from Scripture. First of all, to be a substitute sacrifice for humanity. Look at this passage. Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children, us, have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He was a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of humanity. Therefore, in God's economy, he took on humanity, that he might be our true substitution. Second, to be the one mediator. Look here at 1 Timothy. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. He didn't only mediate from one side of eternity, the throne. He mediates within our time-space continuum when he steps into our world in the incarnation, becomes flesh and dwells among us. One mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. Next, For representative obedience. Look at this passage. Consequently, 
Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, speaking of Adam's sin, of which we all come become through identification guilty of, right? It's called original sin. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for the many. For just as through disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, us, original sin, so also through the obedience of the man, Jesus, the one man, excuse me, the many will be made righteous. It's often said this way. Jesus lived a perfect life because we couldn't. He died on the cross so that we wouldn't. He lived the perfect life because we couldn't. So the righteousness of Christ's perfect obedience to God, to God's law, becomes ours in Christ. It says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So that if when you put your faith in Christ, only your sins were removed, then you would be morally neutral before God. But that's not the great exchange. It's not merely that our sins are removed. It's that the righteousness of Christ, his perfect life, his obedience before the Father is credited to our account. So we're no longer morally neutral before God. We have great merit before God because we are in Christ. He took our messy lives and all of our stuff, nailed it to the cross, buried it in the deepest sea, removed it as far as the east is from the west and gave us the record of his perfect life that we might be treated with the kindness of God for all of eternity and glory. It's a good deal. It's a good deal. Next, to be our example, right? To show us how to live. Whoever claims to live in him, in Jesus, must live as Jesus did showed us a different way to live. God took it to another place other than merely giving us the written law. He gave us truth incarnate. Christ stepped into our world with many of our constraints, our challenges, and he showed us how to live. And the goal of the Christian is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to to live like Christ. Yes, we had God's law, all 613 of them, but Christ came and showed us what it looks like to live for God as our example. And finally, to be our empathetic high priest, Hebrews. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Jesus, the temptation, we'll get to it soon. Just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Christ is the empathetic high priest. He knows what it's like to live in this flesh. He knows what it's like to experience temptation. You say, well, the temptation wasn't for real for him. He's, he's God in the flesh. Listen. Those who have endured temptation the longest are those who know its fullest power. You don't know the power of temptation if you just give in to it. You know the power of temptation if you stand firm against it and Christ stood till the end and was shown to be without sin. He knows the power of temptation. Therefore, when we come to him and say, my Jesus, I'm tempted and I'm struggling, 
I'm fearful and I'm hurting. I'm weighed down and I'm overwhelmed. He's an empathetic high priest who understands the infirmities of our flesh. And so the beckon of the scripture is then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive, what does he have for us? Mercy. And what does he have for us? Grace. When in our time of need, when we're tempted, when we're overwhelmed, when we're weighed down, when we're burdened, when it feels as though it's too much, we come to Christ. And in him, we find grace and mercy. Well, why then did Jesus have to be fully divine, divine, excuse me, fully man and fully God? A couple of very simple reasons. Number one, only God can save. Only God can save. And God says that explicitly in Scripture and ties his salvation to his identity. Isaiah 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. He's the only Savior. So if Christ is the Savior... And Christ is God in the flesh who himself comes to save. Look what it says then in Titus about Jesus, corroborating this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteous and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Only God can save. God draped himself in humanity, in Jesus, to be the Savior of the world. And part of the reason why only God can save is because only God is without sin. Look what the scriptures say in Hebrews. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, speaking of Christ, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, Old Testament economy, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the ancient priesthood of Israel. They would offer up sacrifices of lambs and goats, sheep and doves, so on and so forth for the people, but they themselves had sin. So they first had to offer sacrifices for themselves. They were merely forerunners, pictures of, shadows of, whispers of the great high priest who was to come, who himself was holy, innocent, pure, undefiled, had no sin of his own to deal with, and so could deal fully and finally with our sin through his own sacrifice. Therefore, only Jesus, as God in the flesh, could bear the penalty for our sins. Only by being fully God and fully human can Jesus save us, Scripture teaches. Only the conditions of the virgin birth, as we see in our text, can bring about the dual nature of Jesus, fully God and fully man. Incomprehensible and yet true. Now, What does this mean for us? Why the virgin birth is good news that teaches us to be glad and rejoice. Well, it means this, listen. It means that when God came to save you, he himself came. That's love. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send a prophet or some other messenger. 
There's no other means. God himself in Christ came for you. Doesn't that speak of God's love for you? Isn't that love? He himself came to save humanity. For God so loved you that he came for us. So what do you do with that? Well, rest in God's love. Rejoice in God's love. Came to seek and save the lost. You are the beloved of God. I know our lives are messy. And we maybe don't always look like we ought to look like. But Jesus in the incarnation, God himself has stepped into the mess and said, you are love. So in the midst of your mess, remember the love of God for you. It's bigger than your mess. It's bigger than your mistake. It will outlast the consequences of your bad choices. God's love will. He truly loves you. It means that God has intervened in our messes with a great miracle of mercy, the incarnation. He's mighty to save. He's big enough to deal with our sin. He intervened with a great miracle in the incarnation. It means that God has brought us deliverance from the penalty and the guilt of the law. You know, that was hard stuff, talking about sex outside of the covenant of marriage and adultery. Many of us in this room are guilty of such things. That's, that's hard stuff. Punishable by death in Deuteronomy. But did you know that all sin is punishable by death? Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's hard news, God's moral standard, God's righteousness, the different way that God views humanity and sexuality. That's hard news in our culture, but it comes with good news. Christ has come to deliver us from the penalty of the law, which we ourselves have incurred. It's incredibly good news in the incarnation. There is forgiveness. When we repent of our sins, he forgives us of our sins. When we come to Jesus and put our faith in him, who he is as the promised Messiah, what he's done in coming to earth and dying on the cross and raising from the dead, then we are forgiven. He, like Joseph did with Mary, has entered into our shame and shared it with us through the humiliation of the cross. It means that God has accomplished what humanity never could. That's part of what the virgin birth means, the virgin conception. The, the Bible tells us over and over that we cannot save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation from God. There's nothing we can do to fix the situation of our own sin and rebellion. God had to do it. And so the, the, the supernatural conception is a picture that only God could do this. It wasn't Joseph. He was just a shadow. He was just a whisper. It was the Holy Spirit himself. Only God can save. That's, that's what that's a picture of. Only God can save. But additionally, it tells us that God intends to bring his blessing and rule to the world through his people. Only God could do it, but God did it through a girl. God did it through Mary. That's how God wants to do it in our lives. Only God can bring his blessing and his righteous rule into our world, but God has chosen to do it through us. 
It's not entrusted to the angels. It's not entrusted to some missionaries in Africa. It's you. Mary is a picture of you. When you become a Christian, Christ in you. God's Holy Spirit in you. God intends to bless and extend his righteous rule in the world through our lives. That's a picture of God's love. And then finally, the incarnation tells us that God is present with us. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And that's good news. Because again, as I said in my introduction, life is messy and this world is messy. And I need to know that his mercies are new every morning. And I need to hear the beginning of Matthew where Matthew says, this child is God with you. And I need to remember the end of Matthew where Matthew records the words of Jesus where Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always, even until the end. This is the good news of the incarnation of Christ who came for us that he's with us. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Thank you for what they mean in our lives. Help us, Holy Spirit, to realize these things in our lives, to live into them, to live them out, to be glad and to rejoice in them, that you, Holy Spirit, bring the peace of God to us in the midst of our messy lives. And we would experience the grace and the mercy of Christ. And we would be glad and rejoice in it. Jesus, for those who have maybe put their faith in you, but they feel far from you today, would you show yourself to be Emmanuel, God with them? Would you manifest your love, presence, your kindness? your truth and your nearness to them. For those who have never put their faith in you, Jesus, thank you that you are the one who paid the penalty for our sins. Would they trust you for forgiveness today? Would they repent of their sins and turn to you and say, Jesus, truly you are the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Save me. Thank you for these things that you do in this place and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.